Too often, faith becomes more about who is in and who is out or about who belongs and who does not. But in order for spirituality to be good for anyone, it has to be good for everyone. In this podcast, we find incredible people using their faith and life as a catalyst for goodness in this world. Be inspired to discover your own goodness in order to make your life, your family, your community, and your world better. Hey, welcome to the Chasing Goodness Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Kinzer. Great to be with you as always. I'm taking a couple weeks off from putting out new content. Hey, by the way, happy 4th of July if you're listening to this when it comes out. Happy 4th of July. And since today is the 4th of July when this is coming out, the replay that I wanted to do, I wanted it to represent the 4th of July some way, some shape, some form. And so I didn't have to think long of what I should put out. It, it was it was clear as a bell. So a couple of years ago, I had a great interview with a man. His name is Mark Charles. Now, Mark ran for president in the last presidential election. He also, along with Soong Chen Ra, wrote an incredible book called Unsettling Truths. And it just feels appropriate for the 4th of July to replay this interview. So if you haven't heard it before, or if you did and you just totally forgot about it, enjoy this interview with Mark Charles. Well, let me begin just by introducing myself traditionally. So Yate, Mark Charles, Yinishia, Sin in our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people with our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbekedinah. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge I moved to where I live now, which is Washington, D.C., from the Navajo Nation about five and a half years ago with my family. And uh, the Washington, D.C. area is the traditional land of the Piscataway. And so I want to honor the Piscataway as the host people of these lands. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to publicly acknowledge that they are still here. I've had the honor of meeting some of the Piscataway. I've been welcomed to the land by some of the Piscataway. And I'm deeply humbled to be living on the lands that they have stewarded for these hundreds, even thousands of years. Oh, Mark, my heart is just so touched right now by that introduction. I, I appreciate that. I think there's such a, a piece of me that resonates with the, the way that you think and even what you just said about how we honor the land, how we honor the people who have been on our land before we were here. And in so many ways, it feels as if as a society, Americans, and I can speak mostly to white Americans because that's what I grew up in, we have not done a good job of respecting our lands. We've not done a good job of respecting those who have been on these lands before us. So can you just speak into maybe our lacking in that space a little bit? Yeah, there's a huge disconnect that most Americans have regarding the land they're living on and the history that happened over these lands. You know, the, the title of the book that I wrote with my good friend Sing Chan Ra on Selling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. The first sense of that book says you cannot discover lands already inhabited. 
And most people believe, most Americans believe that these lands were discovered. Columbus discovered America. And that's not accurate. Columbus colonized America. Columbus oppressed the lands here. They stole these lands. They didn't discover them. You can't discover lands already inhabited. And because of that mythology of discovery that our nation is really deeply rooted in and deeply invested in perpetuating that myth, um, we don't know how to talk about the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. And so wherever I go, when I travel, I always am very intentional to speak and to acknowledge the people whose land I'm on, reminding people that there's a history to these lands that predate your history books, that predate your experiences here. You know, one of the things I get told frequently is that people tell me, well, I don't know much about Native Americans because there's no Native Americans in my context. There's none in my city. There's no Native Americans in my neighborhood or in my, in my community. And so I'm not aware of that history. And I tell them, yeah, that was by design. Your nation was literally constructed so that you would not have to think about the people who were ethnically cleansed from the lands so that your town, your city, your state, your community could be built. Dealing with the, the notion, the, the understanding that you cannot discover lands already inhabited and the way that these lands became colonized was literally through ethnic cleansing and genocide. And so acknowledging the people whose land we're on is one of the first steps of beginning to deconstruct that myth and begin to create what I refer to frequently as a common memory. Um, there's a, a quote I use. I use it in the book. I've used it where I speak. And it's a quote used by George Erasmus when he was writing about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission up in Canada. And he said, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. If you want to build community, he said, you have to start by creating common memory. I love that quote. That quote, I think, gets to the heart of our nation's problems, especially regarding race, which is we have a white majority that remembers this mythological history of discovery, of expansion, of, of opportunity and exceptionalism. And we have communities of color that have the lived experience of stolen lands and broken treaties, of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of Indian boarding schools and massacres and segregation and internment camps, of mass incarceration, of families being ripped apart at our borders. And there's no common memory. And there's actually no point in US history where you can look back and say, oh, in this decade or in this year or in this period, we had healthy community across racial lines doesn't exist. And so, so much of the work that I'm trying to do is to teach this history to deconstruct and confront these myths and these lies so that we can actually build a common memory, not for the purpose of shaming or just making people feel bad, but so that we can recognize who we are, what we're built on, and we can actually invest in creating a healthier community moving forward. I love that. You're absolutely right. I think that is one of the biggest myths that at some point something was correct or at some point there was a togetherness. Sometimes we walk around with that assumption that obviously when you look back through our American history isn't true. Now, I think, and I'm, I'm guessing you agree, but I really want to get your perspective because I want to talk about what's going on right now. You're out in DC. We're seeing all the upheaval that's been going on out there, not just 
in recent weeks, but for a long time. It's hard for me to look at that and not see a really strong undertone of everything that you just talked about, just showing itself in the way that we're seeing on the news today. Could you speak into whether you agree with that or, or what you're seeing and experiencing out there right now? Absolutely. The both implicit and explicit racial bias that both affected how our nation, our police force responded to these protests and to these things, as well as what it was been going on, not just in the past week, but in the past four years and actually in our history, are all driven by our nation's white supremacist, racist, and sexist foundations and the fact that we've never dealt with this history. There's so many places I could begin talking about this. I ran for president in 2020. I was an independent candidate, and the theme of my campaign was to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people. And what I'm working hardest to do is to help our nation deal with our foundations. So we have a Declaration of Independence that refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. 30 lines after the term all men are created equal, it literally refers to natives as merciless Indian savages, meaning the only reason the founding fathers use that inclusive term all men is they had a very narrow definition of who is human. We have a constitution that never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. We have never abolished slavery. The 13th Amendment reads, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party has been duly convicted shall exist. We have Supreme Court cases as recently as 2005 referencing the doctrine of discovery as the legal precedent for land titles, basically arguing that because natives were savages, even though we were here first, we are only occupants of the land. And white people, white Europeans, white Americans, they are, they are the discoverers of the land, so they have the title to it. This is literally what land titles are based on in the United States. I gave a TEDx talk about it maybe two and a half years ago, a little over two years ago, titled We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. And I go into depth into that history, especially those Supreme Court cases. And that last case, the 2005 opinion written by the Supreme Court, one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court opinions written in my lifetime, and it was written and delivered by Ruth Bader Ginsburg which shocks people because she was this, this voice of dissent on an extremely conservative Supreme Court who was fighting for the right to the marginalized. But what I point out for people is when your land titles are based on the notion, the legal understanding that natives are savages, this makes white supremacy a bipartisan value. And so throughout the campaign, when themes came up like this, like the shooting, the lynching of George Floyd, and after that lynching, the two major candidates in the race, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Donald Trump responded by basically, he issued an executive order banning certain chokeholds. Joe Biden suggested that we should train officers to shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest. Those literally were their responses to that lynching. And I was saying in my campaign, we have to abolish slavery. The 13th Amendment doesn't abolish it. It redefines and codifies slavery 
under the jurisdiction of our criminal justice system, meaning our criminal justice system is systemically and institutionally white supremacist. And this is the justice system that's not only lynching our people of color, it's incarcerating them at a massive rate over and above white people. And it has a school-to-prison pipeline and all these injustices taking place because we've institutionalized slavery there. And so I said, if we want to really deal with this, we have to actually go back and abolish slavery so that we can actually begin to move forward. So this was the argument we were making in the campaign. Not long after that, Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back. Now... You would think this actually was, if you look at Joe Biden and Donald Trump, this shouldn't have been a problem, right? He wasn't choked, so Trump got his wish, and he wasn't killed, so Joe Biden got his way. But obviously the nation's like, this is still absolutely unjust. He was shot seven times in the back, and just a week ago, the day before what happened in D.C. with this, this terrorist attack against the Capitol, the city of Kenosha decided that they were not going to charge the officer who shot him. And so this, is again, goes back to the point of this is a foundational-level problem. This is not a training issue, first and foremost. It's not just we need a new executive order. This is we have to deal with our foundation. It's that ability to deal with it at a foundational level that that's when I saw what was happening with, you know, it's been called a riot, it's been called a mob, it's been called an insurrection. I refer to it most frequently as a terrorist attack. They started out maybe as protesters, although they had very different intentions, and then they, they crossed the line, and they became, literally became terrorists, terrorized our lawmakers, stopped them from doing their work, tried to overturn the election, and most of them were allowed to walk out of there. What was fascinating is I was, you know, I live in D.C. I literally live only about a mile and a half from the Capitol. We were listening to our leaders and we did not go down to the Capitol. But I was watching it all play out on television and online. And first, Joe Biden gave an address. And in his address, he was very adamant of saying to the American people, this is not who we are. And then he went on to say things like, we can address this issue and we can do anything we put our mind to. He literally starts affirming American exceptionalism. Donald Trump, in his first response in that tweet he gave, that video tweet he did, he was basically calling the terrorists very special people. And he was reiterating how this election was stolen. He was reiterating these baseless claims, and he was calling the people enacting this violence and terrorism very special people. Absolutely in complete denial. And I saw both of our leaders respond that way, and I, I knew how absolutely inadequate it was. And so maybe an hour or so, about 5.30 that night, I think, maybe an hour, two hours after that, I did a live stream on my own YouTube channel, and I said to anyone who is listening to the American people, the problem is, is this is absolutely who we are. This is who we are as a nation. We are a nation founded on a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery. We have white supremacist, racist, and sexist foundations. Our wealth is built on discovered lands on the dehumanization of, of indigenous peoples, on the ethnic cleansing and genocide of these lands. 
Our wealth is built by the enslavement of people who were imported here from Africa. This is absolutely who we are. And if we can't acknowledge that, we're never going to get better. When, when you deal with an addiction and you go to an AA-type meeting, right, the first thing you have to do is sit there and acknowledge, I have an addiction. I'm an alcoholic. I have an addiction, and I'm here to get help. If you can't acknowledge you have an addiction, you're never going to get better. And so the way that both Donald Trump and Joe Biden were responding, it's like they went to an AA meeting, blatantly drunk, and when it came to their turn to talk, they said, we're just here for the cookies. <laughs> we're not, we're not, we don't really have a problem. We're just here for the cookies. I saw a post, Mark, just right along with what you're saying. I saw somebody posting and I, several people posting saying, we are better than this. And I responded to them and I said, we obviously are not. And we've got a lot of work to do if we expect any sort of forward movement. And I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying. Now, a lot of us, I would say probably today, yesterday, started hearing a lot of um, things that are, are concerning about what potentially could happen within the next couple days to couple weeks ahead. What are you hearing from where you are? Uh, what are you expecting? And maybe what are you hoping for a response as well, I guess? Yeah. So, I mean, I feel very strongly, like I, I refer to this, this was a terrorist attack and there absolutely needs to be accountability. Mm -hmm. I completely agree that Donald Trump needs to be impeached. He needs to be removed from office and he needs to be barred from ever running for public office in the United States again. There absolutely needs to be accountability to him for what he incited, for the baseless lies that he promoted and for the way that he is responsible for what happened within our country. So first and foremost, we, we need to find a way to deal with that. Second, we need leaders who are not going to just coddle the American people and say, this is not who we are. No, this is who we are. We need to create this common memory. We have to find a way to, to wrestle with that so that we can actually get better. Neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden are interested in actually dealing with our foundational level issues. They're concerned about the cosmetics. They're concerned, Joe Biden's concerned about getting us back to the status quo. They are not interested in going down into the basement of the house and looking at the cracks in the foundations and addressing it at that level. And that's what we need to do. And, and that's what I'm, I'm very concerned is not going to happen now. Why? And I'll, I'll put this on politicians, Americans, Christians. Why are we so tied to not allowing our foundational documents to be changed? I'm thinking about the Constitution. I'm, I'm also thinking about Christians and their views of the Bible unwilling to waver or allow yeah. for change there either. What is it that's inherently built in this American ethos that doesn't think it's a good idea to change because in science and everywhere else, it's a great idea. Well, this is why I actually, I wrote this book is because we wanted to address those very issues, which is our nation does not know how to deal with this history. So one of the most unifying themes in American politics is the myth of American exceptionalism which is rooted in the lie of white supremacy. 
So even just um, on Sunday, the Sunday after this after this terrorist attack, I do a live stream several times a week. I started it during my campaign. I've been doing it since then. I call it my second cup of coffee. Nice. Where sometime mid-morning, early afternoon, when I'm drinking my second cup of coffee of the day, which I'm doing right now, actually, I'll sit down and I'll do a live stream and I'll go more in-depth into some issue going on that day or something I've been thinking about. Or I'll, It'll be a time just to kind of not do debrief, but go more in depth into some of the, the stuff going on. And I did a second cup of coffee where I talked about the passage that I was certain most churches would at least reference, if not actually preach on, which is the passage of Second Chronicles 7.14. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Whenever our nation gets into systemic challenges like what happened with this terrorist attack against our capital, the church almost immediately turns to that passage. Now that passage, the context of it is the dedication of the temple with Solomon and God's reiterating his land covenant with the people of Israel, which says, if you obey my commands, I will bless you in your land I've given you. If you disobey them, I will exile you or remove you from those lands. When the church claims that promise, they are basically saying, we have promised lands. We are God's chosen people, and this land, Turtle Island, is our promised land. And if we obey God's command, He will bless us in our promised lands. Now, I I do teaching all around the country, and I, I have a partnership with the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, and I was there probably two years ago at a conference. I've been working with them for over a decade, talking about these issues. And we were doing, a, it was a panel on the doctrine of discovery and these types of issues. And I said to the people there, I said, you know, when you claim to discover lands and then you ethnically cleanse them and then you import another race of people and you enslave them and force them to build it up, I said, guess what's going to happen? You are going to become unbelievably wealthy. This says absolutely nothing about God's blessing. This is nothing about God giving you prosperity because you've been so obedient. When you commit injustice, when you dehumanize, when you exploit, when you oppress, when you act with impunity, you and you get away with it, you will become absolutely over-the-top wealthy. That's what's happened to our country. The reason we are so rich is not because God's blessed us, it's because we have never been held accountable for our injustices. Two of the hardest chapters to read in this book are chapters 9 and 10 where I go into depth on the history of President Abraham Lincoln. And I demonstrate, I prove, that Abraham Lincoln is one of the most white supremacist and ethnic cleansing presidents in our nation's history. And actually, we argue, Sintran and I argue, that's why we hold him up as our greatest president. Because he gave us the tools today that we're using to keep white supremacy intact. He gave us the 13th Amendment, which we are still using today to strip the civil rights of people of color, 
and to treat them with with racism. So that sermon that uh, what I did last Sunday, where I said, this is the problem: is the church thinks the solution is going to come, and the hope of the church, the hope the church offers itself and the nation, is that if we obey God. He will bless us in these lands. And that's not true. That's what got us into the problem in the first place, is believing that we had promised land, we had a covenant with the God of Abraham, and that we're God's chosen people as a nation. And so I was pointing out how this misinterpretation, this heresy, is not the solution to our nation's problem. It's actually the root of it. It's the cause of the problem. This is literally, the, this is what the book states. Basically, build this argument throughout the entire book and come to the conclusion that in its current state, in the, the Western Christianity, in the American church's current state, it is impotent. It is incapable to be a part of the healing of the injustices of our nation. Because the only solution the church in its current state offers is to say, let's make the nation Christian. And it's this Christian nationalism, it's this Christendom, this heresy of Christian empire that caused the problem in the first place. Yeah, and just to be clear, when we're talking about injustices in our country throughout the ages, the church was standing right there on the wrong side every time. The doctrine of discovery was the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. Invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Convert them to his and to their use and profit. This is what the church said to the empires of Europe, and that's exactly what they did. And so, yeah, the church wrote this doctrine and is absolutely complicit in the injustices that have been perpetrated because of this dehumanizing doctrine of discovery. So the church does not stand apart from the injustice. The church stands arm in arm with the injustice. Absolutely arm in arm with the injustice. You know, as I was trying to drive this point home, and we almost included this in the in the book, but we decided to end it in a different way. But about two and a half years ago again, it was, it was almost two, almost three years ago, it was 2018. And I was, uh, I was again at Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, and I was speaking to uh, some of their grantees. They have a great grants program for, for worshiping communities there. And I was speaking to some of the grantees, and they asked me, the leadership asked me to write in the form of a proverb some of my prophetic message and my prophetic call to the church. And I want to read to you what I wrote, because I think this really hits home the message that we have to learn how to wrestle with as a church, as well as as a nation. It's called From Prophecy to Proverb. I wrote this in 2018, right when the immigration crisis was coming to a head. We had children in cages, we have families being ripped apart at our borders, and it was really kind of coming to a head in our, in our nation at that moment. And this is what I wrote. I said, wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. Remember, my brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples, 
He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. When the church merely lobbies one political leader and protests the other, when for the sake of argument or political gain, the body of Christ turns a blind eye to one sin and magnifies another, we are not representing the headship of our body who is Christ. As vile, repulsive, and urgent is the Trump administration's separation of families at our border, it's not the first time. Indian removal, the slave trade, boarding schools, lynchings, Japanese internment camps, mass incarceration, even the deportation numbers of the Obama administration. The list of ways the U.S. government has worked to destroy the family structure of people of color throughout our history is as long as it is depressing. So let's stop pretending that President Trump is the God-ordained savior or the ultimate demise of our union. The same with President Obama. What our nation needs is not for Democrats to be better Democrats, nor do we need Republicans to simply be better Republicans. We don't even need our nation to be more Christian. My brothers and sisters, the United States of America is not, never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. And wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. I agree with Kenneth Kaunda, the former president of Zambia, who said, What a nation needs more than anything else is not a Christian ruler in the palace, but a Christian prophet within earshot. Special thanks to Mark Charles for joining me for this important conversation. Make sure you purchase his book, Unsettling Truths, that he wrote with Soong Chan Ra. I'll put a direct link in the show notes. Also, his website is wirelesshogan.com. I'll also put a direct link to that in the show notes as well. If you want to hear more about Unsettling Truths, make sure you check out Season 2, Episode 20, where I interview the other author of the book, Soong Chan Ra, Again, that's Season 2, Episode 20. As always, make sure you subscribe to this podcast, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. Until next time, keep walking.